Today's episode is brought to you by Fretboard Biology, the comprehensive online guitar course put together by Joe Elliott. Now, Joe is not only a fantastic guitar player, he draws on his years of experience as the ex-head of guitar at the Guitar Institute of Technology and also at the McNally Smith Music College. Here's a few words from Joe about the course. You're tired of wading through hundreds of random guitar videos and just want to become a better player. Fretboard Biology is your answer. Fretboard Biology is a self-paced, college-level program that will give you the right instruction, in the right amounts, and in the right order. You'll learn the same information I taught to thousands of other guitar players over 30 years of teaching in top music colleges. If you want to make real progress with your guitar playing, then sign up for a free 7-day trial at fretboardbiology.com. Hey everyone, welcome to the Guitar Speak podcast. My name's Matt Wakeling and this is the show that I produce in Sydney, Australia, where I speak to leading guitarists and guitar figures. And also established pretty much mid-2020 is the iconic album series and that's what we're running in today's episode with my friends Rob Rhodes. Hey Matt, hey Gabor. And Gabor Jessica. Hey guys, how are you? Great, man. Great to see you guys. Now, with the iconic albums, we, we talk about some of the favourite albums in our record collections. And this has been a really fun addition to the podcast this year. I have loved it. Absolutely. Now, we're doing something a little different in this episode. We're not looking at uh, one album. We're looking at several albums. We're close to a dozen uh, live albums. And this was Rob's idea for a different kind of episode, which is such a good idea. I think yeah. live albums... For me, I love live albums for a couple of reasons. One is that, you know, you hear some songs that you love from a band you're really into with a whole new energy, sometimes whole new arrangements. So that's always really fun. And uh, a nice byproduct of the live album is that sometimes they, they work as like a de facto greatest hits album. So uh, that, that can also be fun if there's a favorite artist or band that, that you want to check out. So Rob, awesome idea, man. Yeah. Thanks, yeah, it's, it's a good little rabbit hole to go down. <laughs> definitely, definitely. And uh, I guess a couple of caveats, it's impossible to choose all of our favourite live albums. Um, so I think we've got it to 11 tonight. So we could we could do a new live album every day for the next 20 years. Um, we might actually do, <laughs> we, we might revisit this idea uh, in 2022, 20, yeah. I think. That could be fun. So uh, we're getting through as many as we can. Um by the time we get to the end of the episode, if, if you hear any albums that you really want to hear, shoot us, a, shoot us a line. In fact, I've got a little bit of listener feedback that I want to share with you guys. Uh-oh, uh-oh. <laughs> Before we jump into the live albums, this comes from Anthony Gerber. Anthony actually is a super cool dude who has set up a, um, a playlist on Spotify with all of the iconic albums episodes, which is really cool. Yeah, right. And uh, he shot me another note. So it says this. You ready? Some positive feedback. Gabor's selections and comments are resonating a lot with me. He's introducing me to albums that I love, and I've been so relieved to hear someone voice my I don't get it feeling about sacred cows like Cold Chisel and Van Halen. <laughs> Smiley face. Yes! Oh, yes! You've, you've got a soulmate out there. Yes! Yes, we've got to meet. We've got to meet. We, yeah. I have to meet him. We've got to meet up somewhere. <laughs> And start a club. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> that no, well, that's awesome. awesome. Thank you. I'm glad. See, I, I, I mean, I know I'm always the, 
the black sheep, but <laughs> there are other black sheep out there, you know. That's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Anthony, thanks so much for dropping us that line. I knew Gabor would love it. I've been dying to share it with him. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Anthony, and thanks, Matt. <laughs> there you go. Hey, if anyone's been listening to the episodes, you want to chime in, send, a, send an email, guitarspeakpodcast at gmail.com, or you can find us on Facebook or um, uh, Instagram, or just, just catch Rob or... Gabor or I down the street. It's all good. Yeah. All right. Live albums. Let's jump in. We've got a bunch to go through. Rob, would you like to kick us off? You've chosen uh, for the first in your list, Brian Adams, Live, Live, Live. Yeah, this was this was a difficult thing and I tried to maybe theme it to like go-to lives rather than because – if I had to pick three tomorrow, I'd probably pick a different three or four. So, <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, but on this day when you asked, this is where I was at. So, yeah, Brian Adams' Live, Live, Live. Uh, it was released uh, on in 1988. So uh, at that point, Brian had had four studio albums. So it had lots of material to pick from. And, and he really, yeah, this is, as you said earlier, runs like his greatest hits at, uh, come that time, 1988. Um, it features Keith Scott on guitar, who I think yes. is criminally underrated in the Absolutely. pop rock world of guitar players. And sadly, he, well, not sadly, but he got a Gretsch signature model that really failed to get any traction, but it's a beautiful guitar. It's kind of a uh-huh. take on mm-hmm. a Chet Atkins Um and yeah, beautiful, beautiful guitar. But again, I don't think he's quite in that that league where everybody knows where he is and his signature model is going to be successful. But if you come across one, I reckon they might be future collector's items, those ones. Got to check it out. But um, it's Mickey Curry on drums, Dave Taylor on bass, um, Tommy Mandel on keyboards, the great Keith Scott on guitar, and of course, Brian Adams, guitar and vocals. Now, the opening six tracks of this album are just killer. Um, <laughs> so she's only happy when she's dancing, it's only love, cuts like a knife, kids want to rock, hearts on fire and take me back. Uh, and then you get a couple of well-placed ballads, the best is yet to come and, of course, his big hit heaven. Uh, and then it's into the, the big anthems, the rock anthems again, Heat of the Night, which features a great out solo by Keith. Uh, Run to You, and then all the the big ones, Long Gone, One Night Love Affair, Summer 69, and Somebody, which is quite heavily featuring the Reckless album um, as far as the track listing, but all the big ones from that. Um, And then a couple of covers, Walking After Midnight and I Fought the Law, and then a little ballady out on the end, Sing Along. Now, it was recorded at um, Rock Worcester, Worshetta, um, which is Worshetta in Belgium. And it was oh. a festival on the 3rd of July in 1988. Um, but one track, Into the Fire, which is the outro, um, that was recorded in Tokyo. Now, the album sold over a million copies. So at the time, you can see how big Brian Adams was that yeah. a live album that wasn't billed as a greatest hit sold over a million copies. Um, and it was recorded in a unbelievably torrential rainstorm so um you can hear him address it on the record as he says to them you know for you guys to stand out in the rain is pretty amazing um 
and it runs at a total of 70 minutes. So if you think Brian Adams is just, you know, weepy ballads from the 90s, <laughs> um, this is him at his rockin' best mm. and the band is on fire. The songs don't really go too far away from the recorded versions. Um, there's a few ex- extended jams and stuff, but, yeah, basically it's a pretty tight, succinct 70-minute set of Brian Adams at that time of his career. Yeah, man. I, I agree. Keith Scott is unbelievably good. I reckon he's one of the the main guys, maybe with someone like Elliot Easton from The Cars, who always plays the perfect guitar solo for the song that he's yeah. in. Yeah. Who has a great signature man. guitar as well. Yes, Elliot true, true. Maybe it's a Gretsch signature guitar thing. <laughs> could be, could be. Because Scott, he may, I mean, when he wasn't doing the Gretsch thing, he was pretty much a Strat guy. He for really, this record, yeah. He been on the Strat, yeah. yeah. Early on, he was very, I don't, he, he had the Gretsches from time to time, but from some of the things I read, because I was researching that model a while ago, because one popped up on uh, Marketplace. And uh, yeah, he wasn't really a big fan. He wasn't, he didn't speak favorably of Gretsch's. Um, so it was a strange decision that he got one, but uh, hmm. it did make sense because in the 90s he did play Gretsch's quite a bit in the early 2000s with Brian. Um, and Brian yep. played Gretsch's too. He's photographed with them on album yeah. covers. and Yeah. yeah. You know, but big Strat guys, both of them too. So It looks cool. I just I, I don't yeah. think I've ever seen it. I'm just looking it up now. It looks It's very uh, sparkly. Yeah. Looks great actually. Hey, Brian Adams' guitar sounds great on this record too. So he's doing, he sounds like he's in stereo. That kind of run to you thing. Yeah. Um, is awesome, man. And I think, is he, is he a Vox? Is he plugged into a bunch of Voxes? Quite possibly. He, he, he kind of, I, I don't know much about Brian as a guitar player, but uh, yeah. he did, there's a lot of tellies and strats, obviously, rhythm instruments. Um, and I have yeah, seen yeah. him with Gretsch's and 335's as well. So. I, I was just from seeing stuff on MTV and stuff when I was younger, I always remember Strats or Gretsch's. That was always the – because I think he's quite a little dude as well. The Gretsch always looked really big on him. I just remember yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, he's been no, – that's awesome. He's been around a long time, Brian Adams. Oh, like, yeah. He was, on, he was on opening tours for Van Halen and stuff in the late 70s. Uh, so he, he definitely – Paid his dues before the big, you know, the big hits. Cut like cuts like a knife was probably his big injection worldwide as far as a hit single. And then when Reckless hit, you couldn't really escape. Summer '69, Run to You, Heaven, yeah. you know, those just a killer album from top to tail. That yeah. one too. I had that record um, on cassette actually. Yeah, me too. In, uh, when I was in year eight or something, I put the headphones on and, <laughs> man, Keith Scott, those those solos are burnt into my brain. Um, quick fun fact about Keith Scott that I heard from Dave Leslie. So Baby Animals, when they toured with Van Halen in the 90s, um, they also did some tours with um, Brian Adams. They also opened okay. for them. And then the last time Brian Adams came out, they, they worked with uh, the Baby Animals again. Anyway, he said backstage Keith Scott was a killer jazz player. Oh. Makes sense. I guess he's he does follow that um, you know chord based harmony soloing like very melodic and definitely uh, that's out of my comfort zone. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yep. And Ditto. mine. Awesome, man. Hey, great record. Great record, Rob. I loved hearing Keith rip live. His tone is killer. Everything's killer. It's great. Thanks, man. Hmm. Love it. All right. Let's jump over. Portishead, live at Roselands. This is your record, Gabor. Yes. Okay. So uh, I picked... Uh, so you were talking about um, live albums being sort of greatest hits. And, and, and to me, like there's actually out of in my list, two of the live albums were actually albums that introduced me to the band. And this was one of those. Because um, I remember seeing the concert on... I don't know if it was on, on like maybe Raid showed at one time the whole concert, the whole um, oh, okay. the whole yep. um, show or something like that. But I saw, I remember I was in high school here in Australia. I saw it and um, I just loved it. I loved the you know the the um, Walnut three three five he was playing. I thought that's just the coolest looking guitar. The orchestra sitting there, uh, yeah. it, it got me into the band. Anyway, anyway, so um, I don't know if if how familiar you guys are with Portishead, but. Um, Probably one of my all-time favorite bands. I, I got to put them up in a, I reckon, top five of my all-time favorite bands. So this album was released on uh, November second, nineteen ninety-eight, and it was recorded on July twenty-fourth, nineteen ninety-seven, at Roselands Ballroom in New York City. Uh, so the band, uh, th- there's a whole bunch of extra people in the band when they, while they were playing live, but the band is really uh, the guitar player Adrian Utley. Uh, vocals uh, Beth Gibbons and uh, sort of electronics DJ and drumming and percussion uh, Jeff Barrow. Uh, so they're the three guys that sort of they're the main brains behind the band. Um, uh, there's a really beautiful orchestra orchestra in this in this uh, live recording as well, which was conducted by Nick Ingham and the string arrangement was actually done by Adrian Utley, the guitar player. So he arranged he did the string arrangement. Um, yeah, so uh, I just I just wrote down sort of notes. Uh, uh, I remember seeing the concert on TV. Absolutely loved it. Uh, a good friend of mine who I've mentioned a couple of times on the podcast before, da- Daniel Daniel Brown. Hey, Daniel, if you're listening to this, I don't know why I'm waving into the camera, but anyway, <laughs> um, uh, Daniel sort of, is waving. He's before. waving here. Yeah. Oh, he's he's listened to a couple of he listened to the Primus episode, so uh, and a couple of others, and commented to me about it and stuff like that. So he was sort of a bit of my kind of like my musical guru almost in high school and he um i sort of mentioned that i think once that i said oh that that porter said that was great and he pulled out like always he had every album by every band ever and he pulled out the album and he said this is their um <laughs> which is the self-titled album he said have a listen to it it's great absolutely loved it um uh, uh i love um beth gibbon's voice she's just got such an emotive yeah, voice yeah. and i always say it's sort of on the verge of nervous breakdown <laughs> you know just to, just barely anyway so I, I love that band and um uh it's just a beautiful concert uh sort of a mix of all their songs uh at the time they only had an album and an ep out anyway i think well now they only have two albums and an ep out so they're not a super highly productive band but i think what they release is is really really good um i love the guitar i love adrian Utley's guitar it's sort of that spy movie 60s mm. movie soundtrack lots of single note low single note um playing very dissonant stuff as well um uh uh yeah and he's a, he's a very basic straightforward player um for the concert he used the silver face fender deluxe reverb uh all the reverb and tremolo here come from the amp uh he had a rat a fuzz face a wah and possibly a dm2 delay by boss 
Um, that's all yeah. he was using. But some beautiful guitar from really nasty fuzz guitar tones, some beautiful yeah. cleans with that tremolo and reverb. Um, he played um, uh, Telly on it for a couple of songs. He uh, Black Fender Jaguar, uh, not much information on all of them. Uh, the guitar that sort of stood out to me the most was a, a Walnut uh, Gibson 335 uh, with the block inlays, so possibly early 70s, um, which in an article actually I read, he said he absolutely hated that guitar. Uh, <laughs> he never liked it. <laughs> he said it always sounded like a dog, and when he sort of had more money and could afford to get rid of it, he got rid of it and got other guitars. Okay. <clears throat> and he played a Takamini acoustic um, on some of the songs too, which... Um, uh, in a one, he starts off acoustic and then it actually switches to the amp and he uses a fuzz sound with the acoustic, which is kind of cool. Nice. Um, but have you guys had much experience with Portishead? When, when I got to uni in 2005, the, the big bands people were listening to um, was was Radiohead. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and Portishead, really. For In terms of bands that have kind of so, broken over into the mainstream, but we're still doing really creative and interesting yeah. stuff. And there's a whole bunch of other crazy stuff going on. But but those two bands, I was listening to a lot then. Oh, cool, yeah. yeah. And yeah, I always dug the the mix of, um, especially for the live album, the mix of the sample-based stuff, which obviously they did a lot in the studio, plus the live orchestration yeah. and uh, live guitars and live drums, which was really cool. Live I drums mixed with, with electronic drums and stuff. I love – that's one of the yeah. things I really love about what they do is that sort of that blend of, I, I guess, with air quotation marks, organic, you know, like electric guitars, electric yeah. bass, real drums, and having the orchestra there as well. Yeah, uh, but then having all the electronic side of it, it just works together so well. And one of the coolest things, if you watch the if you watch the the whole show, there's a rat pedal on everything. <laughs> there's rat pedals <laughs> on keyboards. There's a rat pedal ne- next to the DJ thing. There's rats everywhere. So that's just for that, you know. <laughs> um, I remember my first long term relationship. Porter's head and Fiona Apple were kind of oh, a soundtrack to that relationship. She's great so, too, Fiona Apple, yeah. Um, that speaks volumes, I guess. Yeah. Uh, it, didn't, it didn't work out. We're still great friends. Shout out, Kate, hey. Um, uh, but she, <laughs> yeah, she'd listened to a lot of that. Uh, Portishead, Fiona Apple, the first Powderfinger record, yeah. uh, Massive Attack. That sort oh, that's of, a, that's another, it's all sort name, of around that time. So yeah. I can't recall it. It's, it's back in some far off. Nostalgic memories there, and <laughs> yeah. the tears well up when I hear it. But uh, other Sorry. than that, yeah, I'm <laughs> no, I actually went back and listened to Porter's Head not too long ago. It's great stuff. Like, it's I love it's it. I just it's so beautiful the music and her voice. It's just I think one of the most emotive singers ever. I reckon she just has yeah. so much emotion in her voice. Um, whether it's sort of sassy emotion or like literally on the verge of completely exploding in in self-hate and <laughs> and 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 hurt and they use it they use it a lot to um sort of in soundtracks like to set yeah. mood like yeah. i hear it a lot oh, in yeah. the british um british crime dramas and stuff like yeah. that it'll be yeah. in the background maybe luther i might have heard it in luther and a couple of other shows yeah they definitely it's- it can set us. It can really set a scene. So yeah, that music, it absolutely yeah. can. Yeah, so I, I love that album. I, I picked it um, um, 
just because it, it got me into the band and and it's always there's always phases when i go through and it always it's one of those bands that always comes back and i always enjoy it and all three uh, the two albums and the um mm-hmm. um the dummy the ep and the self-titled album and third which was their third album and this i always get back to them and they're they're just so beautiful very cool great record great yeah. record yeah all right well I was going to say not dissimilar, but really very dissimilar. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Wait, someone try and track these albums like somewhere, you know, on a linear scale. <laughs> I know, right. Uh, Kiss. Yeah, totally alive. similar. <laughs> Kiss Alive. 1975. Yeah. Uh, Rob's got the air quotes up. Let's just say it straight out. The Depending on which band member you ask at which time in history, they've all said, yep, the album was absolutely live. And they've all said, no, we overdubbed pretty much everything except for the drums and the audience. Uh, And even then, even then you can hear Eddie Kramer, the engineer, he cranks up the audience when he wants to. He's moving audience sounds around. Uh, He's proto-sampling on tape to... To make it more rocking, so yeah, with with that out of the way, <laughs> I want to talk about this record um, because it is such an influential record, oh, yeah. such a big deal. Not just for Kiss, but it was for Kiss. It was really their breakthrough album. It was their fourth album, essentially a greatest hits, you know, drawn from the first three, and uh, just just shot them into the stratosphere. Now I'm going to age myself here because I reckon out of the three of us. I think I'm the only one who's probably worn the Kiss makeup and played a tennis racket <laughs> along with the records. Um, yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah, Rob? Or the Rob? Rob. Well, look, um, my introduction to Kiss was via Donny Sutherland's Sounds, uh, nice. TV show on Channel 7 back in the day, and I got into them during the Unmasked era. Oh, okay. That's showing my age. Too late. Yeah, so yeah, Shandy so. was a big, big song in my house at that That's time. That's a cool song, Shandy. Yeah. But they'd already taken the mask off, so I could have just said, yeah, I dressed as Kiss too, but after they took the makeup off. <laughs> Did you put the black leather on, though, the leather coat? <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, Shandy. I think Shandy was a makeup song, though, wasn't it? It wasn't Dynasty or Dynasty originally, I think, Shandy. Uh, uh, no, it was off yeah. Unmasked. Was it on Unmasked? Yeah, oh, okay. Unmasked, yeah. Uh, that I, and um, I and She's So European. Oh. I gotta, I gotta, I gotta say, uh, I'm a Kiss <laughs> yeah. fan here. There's probably something that people may not think of me, but Kiss wow. fan here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I went, I went when it did their uh, big reunion uh, concert back with Peter Chris and Ace Freely with the makeup on. Psycho I was there. Oh, okay. I was there at Entertainment Center. I stood. Uh, I remember this is. This is again for the kids out there. Uh, in the days when you had to go to Ticket Tech to buy tickets, <laughs> yes, yeah, <laughs> I lined up outside of Maya at uh, in Maruchidor, where the Ticket Tech was inside of Maya, which is like a department store kind of thing for the non-Australian listeners. And I lined up at I don't know seven thirty in the morning, and I was like fifth from the front uh, to go wow. in to buy tickets. So we had uh, I went with my oh, friend okay. Michael, and we had tickets right up the front, really good tickets. So to give people some oh, context awesome. who might not know what that is, oh, yeah. just it's kind of like lining up for a COVID test in Sydney <laughs> at the moment. You know, that's what we used to have to do to yeah. buy concert yeah. tickets. Yeah. And you'd get turned away. Exactly. You get turned away because it's sold out. Or, Disappointed. Yeah, you'd sit yeah. there and you go, yeah. oh, they're putting a second show on sale. You can stay in the line. 
know? just just there were more more people with stonewashed jeans and mullets and uh, Iron Maiden t-shirts and Kiss t-shirts. Yeah, that's, uh, I wish there was just as many people with masks back then, but you know. Yeah, that would have been you know. good. <laughs> would have been arrested. Oh, that's great. Well, yeah, Kiss for me. It. I started playing guitar when I was twelve, but I really got into music when I was about ten. I think. Uh, I think I've set, shared this before on the on the podcast with you guys, but I got a, you know, a radio cassette player. Um, so I used to tape songs off the radio and listen to AM radio, that kind of stuff. And um, uh, so Kiss became a big deal. The first record I bought with my own money was the double vinyl Kiss double platinum, oh, um, yeah. which I, I think was probably around 81 or something. Like, I can't remember when it came out. I probably got it in 81. And... Um, yeah, so Kiss Alive, so a huge album. This is the funny thing, especially about this record. I don't think there's ever been a more hyped, uh, manufactured um, or merchandised band more than Kiss, right? But you get back to their their roots, especially their early albums, and, and really they're just a hard rock band, a no-frills hard rock band at that, yeah. if you actually listen to the music. Um, and on this album, I think they're smashing it. There are hits like Strutter and Juice, just cool riffs, too, cool, you know, twin guitar riffs. Ace really sounds awesome on this record. He's He's got his Les Pauls plugged into uh, some Marshall Super Leads. And the secret weapon for him, he was using some sort of Damasio. It might have been a Super Distortion. There's some conjectures whether he was using its Super Distortion quite yet. Um, as he was known to, but he, he definitely had some hot wired, high output pickups from Larry Damasio that was really pushing the the uh, the Marshall well, it, it by was, the It was the so ball. hot that there was smoke coming out of it and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Very occasionally. Yeah. Actually, I saw Ace opening for Alice Cooper a couple of years ago, and yeah, he had he was doing all the shtick, the the smoke and and all the stuff. Oh, the the show, Kiss stage show is so cool. Oh, the show, yeah. yeah. Well, they are they are touring again. Uh, I mean, hopefully, you know, post COVID, they'll they'll be able to finish their farewell tour. Um, I'm not sure if I'm going to see this one. I might wait yeah. for the next one. Yeah, the next yeah. farewell tour, but <laughs> Fonzie style. <laughs> exactly. Anyway, Kiss Alive. It, it might be live. It's probably not live. Um, but Ace sounds awesome. There's also some talk whether Ace actually did the overdubs because. Um, Towards the end of his time with the band, um, he, he wasn't turning up to sessions. If he didn't like the songs, he just wouldn't play on them. And, and you know, there's a whole list of session musicians yeah. who played guitar solos and things. But I think listening to it, it, it definitely sounds like Ace. Um, yeah. I think he was still having a good time in the band at this stage. So I think that was, Kiss that was Alive. Early, early enough, yeah, for him to still. There was still fun to be had, yeah. All right, let's move along. Rob, Pink Floyd Pulse. All right, so... Pink Floyd Pulse, this is, it's an amazing record. It's uh, just looking at a few things and with the actual live concert film and the album, it's sold well and truly, I can't get exact figures, but it's well over 5 million copies of this record. Man. You know, at the time they could have done anything. Their world tours were the biggest grossing world tours at the time. Like nothing was even close. Um, but yeah, it was their third live album as it would happen. Um, and it was released on the 29th of May, 1995. Uh, and it was on the division bell tour. So 
you know, Division Bell was, came out in 94. Uh-huh. Um, the most notable thing is that the second disc is completely from start to finish, top to bottom, dark side of the moon. They just play it from you go to woe. Yeah, awesome. I don't know how many more cliches from start to finish I can throw in there. But that was three. <laughs> that was pretty good. Uh, <laughs> but, um, yeah, it, it's, it's one of those records that I never got Pink Floyd. Like it took me a long, long time to get part. There's a couple of bands that are really synonymous with the drug culture and it took a lot for me to get into them. Um, and Pink Floyd is one of those. Um, but then I just kind of buried myself into this album. It might have been 10, only 10 years ago and just forced myself to listen to it from a purely like musician guitar player, songwriter position. And it's what like their music's great. Is it yeah. all great? No. But, you know, that you could say that about any band. But this album from start to finish is brilliant. Yeah. Um, David Gilmore, we really don't even need to say anything about him. But he's like yeah. lead guitar, lead vocals, lap steel on this album. Nick Mason on drums and percussion. Richard Wright had returned by that point. Um, he was playing keyboards. Uh, and then additional personnel. So Guy Pratt. Um, you got Sam Brown, the great Sam Brown on vocals. Oh, really? Yeah. That's cool. Um, yeah, Sam Brown's wonderful. Um, Tim Rennick on guitar and backing vocals as well. It's just like a it's a great, huge band. Um, and you look at the track listing, Shine On Your Crazy Diamond, Astronomy, oh, it's hit Donovan. after hit after hit, yeah. It's yeah. <laughs> and you just go, you can't really get it wrong. And it's really well recorded uh, and it runs at 145 minutes. Yeah. So, wow. you know, if, if you've got a couple of hours to kill, it's a, <laughs> it's a good way to do it. It's a good workout album, you know. Yeah. <laughs> have you guys, uh, just, just on a quick side note, uh, Guy Pratt, have you seen some of the YouTube stuff he, he did during lockdown? Because he put up. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, he he'd been doing the videos where he showed what he played and and. Oh yeah, yeah. he's yeah, been yeah, doing yeah. some really cool cool videos actually, um, on stuff that he's been part of during lockdown. And he's a cool dude. Like he's, he's a, cool a funny dude. Yeah. Hey. Yeah. yeah. Definitely. Um. So Do I you know was, what? Sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I was gonna say, with with Floyd, um, I think I'm with you a little bit too because I mean the early psychedelic stuff gets a lot of. I don't know, street cred, but I actually like this era of Pink Floyd probably yeah. the best. Yeah. So even the newer stuff they're riding around here, like Learning the Fly, um, I love that stuff. I thought it was really, really cool. And it was it was more big stadium rock with long solos. So what was there not to love? But it, I guess different from some of the earlier stuff, but I, I adored this, this era. Yeah, and I think like Delicate Sound of Thunder came out and I loved Dogs of War and On the Turning Away. And that those the addition of those two songs would have been great on this collection, but um, they're not. They're on something else. But they, yeah, you know, they're yep. just that era of Pink Floyd for me too. I really liked. Um, it's, they're, yeah. they're, they're a bit of a funny band for me because I, I, I watching these live concerts, I really like it. But then listening to it without the concert footage, just the audio, I kind of I don't know. I okay. skip and I kind of go. Eh. But when you see the whole thing, 
Yeah. You know, and the plane flying into the wall and all that sort of stuff. I mean, that was different. I think, was that the, no, that was a different concert. Was that one with that plane? Anyway, um, but all the massive stage show and that they do and all the lasers and all the lights and all that stuff. It kind of puts you in the mood to watch this kind of stuff. But then, yeah, then, you, then I put it on in a car driving home and I kind of, ah, uh, skip, skip. That's just, yeah. I, I don't know if that's just me or, yeah. Yeah, because that's probably what turned me off it, that everyone went, oh, you need to drop a trip and watch all the visuals to really understand Pink Floyd. So I went, and put well, I'm the not Wizard gonna of do, Oz on. <laughs> not going to do that. And it just took a while to just sit down and appreciate it for yeah. for the composition of yeah. the music rather than feel like, oh, I have to get into this whole culture of, you know, lasers and smoke and drugs. And, uh, yeah, so it took a bit. Yeah, same, but, yeah, I'm the same, yeah. But um, I thought this was the third incarnation of uh, Pink Floyd, but it's actually the fourth if you count Richard Wright leaving um, and then coming back. So you obviously have the first era of Pink Floyd, which Sid is Barrett. Sid Barrett, yeah. and... Um, then he goes and you have David Gilmore come in and then you have Richard Wright go and then Roger Waters go and then come back and um, and then Richard Wright come back in. Um, so, yeah, it's a really – it's a great concert. It's a great CD. Uh, fun fact is that the original release of Pulse came with a flashing LED light um, that was powered by a AA battery. Um and nice. for just stupid nice stupid tech uh, fact that they used a discontinued, now discontinued LM3909 LED flasher IC. So oh, yes, that one, of course. That, yeah, that, all the, all the nerds out else. there that are into chips and <laughs> they're no longer available. So if you're sitting on some of them, you can maybe recondition some old Pulse CDs and make a fortune. And wasn't that wow. also that era when they had this mystery where there was the, there were these hidden messages in the artwork and in the in the thing behind? Wasn't that wasn't that that same era? As yeah, well? there are apparently you, they, there's an owl hidden in if you put the two sides together, and there's time. There's, I think oh, yeah. there's references yeah. to songs. I was talking to my mate Charlie about it this afternoon. I was quizzing him on the album, and he said, "Oh yeah, there's all little pieces of artwork and stuff in the album cover if you go looking." Yeah. Yeah. Paul is dead. Paul is dead. One of those. Oh, oh yes, man. yes, yes, yes. Wrong band. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, They're yeah. From, from right. England. Ch- <laughs> if you haven't heard this one, go check it out. I think it's probably Pink Floyd at their best live. Um, and you get Dark Side of the Moon as a bonus. All right, Gabor, Nirvana, unplugged, sort of. Sort of. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, speaking of of highly selling uh, live albums, uh, this one is quite a high selling live album. So, uh, Nirvana Unplugged. I mean, do I really need to talk about it much? It's it's. Uh, I mean, talking about iconic live albums, it's it's probably sure. one of the most iconic live albums of the nineties. Um, probably, is it? Am I the only one who thinking that? Uh, yeah, way up there. It's way up there. So it was it was released on November first, nineteen ninety four, uh, which was seven months after Kurt Cobain's death. Yeah, it was wow. recorded on November eighteen, nineteen ninety three, at Sony Music Studios in New York City. Um, it uh, was shown on MTV on December sixteenth, nineteen ninety three. 
like I'm just reading it, possibly one of the most iconic live performances of the 90s. Some magazines rated it as one of the greatest live albums of all times. That's wow. Yeah, that's some in, when they did that. <laughs> In the late nineties, early two thousands, Rob's face. Yeah, you you, can, you got to see it. You can't see it on the podcast. No, no, no. You need Trust the special glasses. If you want it, send us a message and I'll shoot you a screenshot <laughs> <laughs> for reference. For only two dollars, you can. Yeah. Um, uh, it won a Nirvana the only Grammy Award as well, the nine ninety six Grammy Award. Uh, it sold uh, again. Hard to find exact numbers. Around fifteen million albums worldwide. Uh, uh. Which yeah, for amazing. a live album is pretty crazy. Uh, I think yeah. it's the third biggest uh, MTV Unplugged. I think Eric Clapton Unplugged has sold the most. It's like almost 30 million now yeah. that they've sold. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this, yeah, but 15 million for a live album. It's crazy. Um, so, I mean, there's not all that much to say. It's uh, one of the main things sort of is they had uh, big struggles with MTV because Kurt didn't want to play the big hits. MTV wanted them to do the big hits. Yeah. He almost walked last minute he almost didn't do the show but then was talked into it and did the show and i think the world is a better place for him doing it um i remember um seeing clips on tv and i was gonna go when is it finally coming out and i bought it on glorious vhs when it came out <laughs> wow nice um i mean i was a massive nirvana fan kurt cobain fan um uh, I was I was a massive fan also in utero which utero which is an album that we're going to talk about in an upcoming iconic podcast uh-huh. uh, album podcast for sure. Uh, one of the other big things about this whole thing, which is really nothing to do with the actual performance, is the guitar, hmm. the most expensive yeah, guitar of all yeah. times, the 1959 Martin D18E, uh, which uh, Kurt Cobain bought in late '93 at Voltage Guitars in LA. Just a couple of months before the unplugged gig, most likely because of the unplugged gig, or one because that was sort of already in the making. Um, it's a super rare guitar, actually. It's uh, one. Uh, it's number seven of three hundred three hundred and two that Martin made with the two Diamond pickups on it. Uh, it was the first model that featured electric pickups in a Martin that was ever made. Um, and uh, it sold at Julian's, uh, the auction house. Um, for six million ten thousand dollars US, so and I think they said around about nine million Australian dollars, which is just oh, crazy, uh, and was bought by an Australian by Peter Friedman, the founder of Rode microphones. Rode mics, yeah. Rode mics, uh, and and just to give you just a quick idea as well, a year before the cardigan Kurt Cobain wore at, at the NTV Unplugged, that green <laughs> cardigan was yeah. sold for three hundred and thirty-four thousand dollars US, out. making it the most expensive cardigan or sweater of all time. <laughs> what would have Kurt Cobain made of all this? He would have hated it. Yeah, he would have absolutely sure. hated it for sure. Um, one other thing, wow. I quickly want to just 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 touch on. Um, uh, Kurt was really, really, really worried about playing acoustic guitar. Uh-huh. So in a first also for MTV Unplugged, they actually put an amp there. So there was a Fender Twin Reverb that was hidden behind the thing to make it look like a, a monitor, like a like a okay. fallback monitor. Yeah. Uh, and they actually with a DI they split it. So uh, apparently on the recording it's mostly the direct sound with some okay. of the amp mixed in every once in a while, but in yep. the recording he only heard the guitar through the amp. And he was also okay. allowed to use his uh, DS1 or DS2, an EHX small stone, a small clone chorus, um, yeah. 
to yeah, get some distortion on, for um, some solos, Men as Old World and Come As You Are and stuff like that. Yeah, and that was a big thing as well. But he 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 really wanted it, and he was really nervous about performing. And um, and and just I mean, one last quick thing. So uh, he he didn't like the or two last quick last things. He didn't like the sound of the Diamond pickups on it, so he put a Bartolini three AV sound hole pickup in it, which is what you hear. Um, uh-huh. That and of course the Transducer. Cool pickups uh, there. Cool, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, uh, probably one of the most iconic songs on that recording is Penny Royalty, which they did um, a whole bunch of uh, um, trials, basically, during the rehearsal. It always sounded like crap, never worked. And then when they were recording it, they basically, I think there's, you can hear it, uh, Kurt Cobain saying, um, uh, where is it? Uh, uh, Am I going to do this by myself? And then Dave Grohl replied, "Yeah, do it by yourself." And Co- uh, Cobain joked, "If it sounds bad, these people are just going to have to wait." Uh, and he recorded it soul, just playing by himself, and it's become sort of a very, wow. probably one of the most iconic. And his voice sort of breaking and cracking, and just uh, again, um, he, the Cobain biographer Charles Cross uh, said this was probably uh, Cobain's single single greatest moment on stage. Uh, writing that, uh, uh, like all the high water marks in his career, it came at a time when he w- seemed to be destined to fail. Um, yeah, so that's that's uh, Nirvana unplugged. Well, the yeah, song but- that's endured, right? Triple M have carried for twenty years is their Bowie cover. Oh, the Man Who Sold the World, which is great too. Yeah. You know, that's that's the one yeah. that when I think of that album, that's what I that's, hear yeah. just from you know from radio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, my favourite cut is uh, about a girl, the the Beatlesque. Yeah, I think it's the opening track. The isn't first it? track, yeah, 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 yeah. It's awesome. Did his guitar tech get fired after that performance? Uh, no, oh. the, the guitar, he, <laughs> I think he had the one guitar tech throughout the whole his whole career. Because there's always the issue, the discussion on his guitar being out of tune, pretty much throughout that whole what's, thing. What's right? what's being in tune and out of tune? Yeah, I guess. Pish posh. What's a few notes? It's all part of the... Uh, <laughs> it's part of the fun. The luster. Yeah. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back with some more live iconic albums. This episode is brought to you by Fretboard Biology, a comprehensive online guitar course put together by Joe Elliott, ex-head of guitar at the Guitar Institute of Technology and the McNally Smith College of Music. I was one of the beta testers for the course and can say as a music educator, I was really impressed by the logical sequence of learning. The course has also been endorsed by players such as Brett Garson and Greg Cop. For more details, check out the links in our show notes. Welcome back to Iconic Live Albums. We're talking about some of our favourite Live records. We're going to keep moving along. Next up, Peter Frampton. Frampton Comes Alive. This was recorded in 1975. It was released in 76. And it's probably one of the biggest selling live albums of all time. Um, Certainly a huge breakthrough for Peter Frampton as a solo artist. And I was surprised researching this because I've always loved the record. But it was recorded with a four-piece band. And it sounds so full and beautifully produced and unlike Kiss, quote, unquote, <laughs> alive. Uh, apparently there were minimal overdubs, but it's just a, a four-piece band at the top of their game, um, sounding amazing. Frampton's vocal is incredible and he's playing all the guitar solos. 
and, and sounds amazing. Um, that said, shout out to Bob Mayo, who's the rhythm guitarist and just an, just an excellent Rhodes and Hammond player. Um, I know we dig those vintage keyboard sounds here on the podcast and oh, yeah. uh, he's, uh, he's smashing out on that. But um, yeah, massive, massive hits, Show Me The Way, which I just think is, the, is the, still the, the number one road trip song. I could just put that on repeat. For, uh, for for ages. When when I was getting ready for this episode a few days ago, I think I had that song on rotation for about half an hour at least and uh, I was still not sick of it. So good. Baby, I Love Your Way and uh, the Super Jam, Do You Feel Like We Do with the, with the three big hits from this record. And I know we've talked a lot about the, the voice box um, yeah. on the, yeah. it was the Foo Fighters episode, I think. Um, but but just but yeah. but every time every time I just can't not think of it. Every time uh, I, I know hear, what you're say. Do you feel I, I see him push the button, the pedal with that says pig on it <laughs> in the Simpsons. And where's the, the pig? Simpsons <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I just love the pedal that says pig on it. That's <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, it's just every I can't not think of that when the, when i hear those words but anyway <laughs> he's he's well he's in a he's in a pretty uh unique uh cast isn't he of rock stars that have been on the simpsons on the simpsons yeah yeah so yeah that's uh that's cool and yeah is it homer freaking out when the when the voice box kicks in because you know it sounds like a voice and <laughs> hang on it's his guitar talking to me that was a, that was i mean nothing to do with peter frampton really but that was a, that was one of the best simpsons episodes i reckon the, the hullabaluba or whatever they call it that was a big festival there was a it? festival tour that he joined and yeah yeah with the smashing <laughs> pumpkins it. and all anyway anyway <laughs> <laughs> so good. Anyway, this is um, it's a twin album. It's it's really interesting actually. Each side's kind of got its own kind of vibe. So side side A of record one or side one of record A, um, <laughs> it's kind of rocking. And then the flip side of that's got the more acousticy kind of vibe stuff with "Baby I Love You" way on there and some other stuff. Um, they do a great version of "Jumping Jack Flash," the the Rolling Stones tune, which Frampton had already recorded on an earlier album, a studio version. Okay, um, but he kicks it out. But man, he is rocking. He's playing a '54 Les Paul Custom that had been modded with three humbuckers. Um, the the P90s, the original P90s, had been removed. Um, he's playing through an Ampeg Echo Twin, which is a stereo, probably one of the first or one of the earliest stereo amps, I guess, stereo combos, um, which is mainly what we're hearing in the mix. Um, There was a Marshall on stage, a super lead. Um, From what I can gather, mostly we're hearing the Ampeg and the Marshall was on stage just to to be loud pretty much. The Ampeg was only 30 watts. Um, And if you see... If you check out a, a rig rundown, I don't know if he's still playing the Ampegs, but I knew he was until relatively recently. He'd put them in an isolation box and okay. and uh, mm, and run cool. those. And you can definitely hear it in stereo. I think it's just like a, a reverb is in one side and not in the other, something like that. But yeah. it still feels stereo, which I guess <clears throat> makes some of that bigness that I was talking about yeah. about earlier. Um, he's got a talk box, of course, and he's got a Leslie. Um, and that's pretty much it. What what I love about this record, especially the rock and stuff, you can hear him working the volume pot to clean up the tone, and then he's cranking it for solos and and big power chords and stuff. But he um, but he sounds awesome, man. He sounds awesome. 
He kind of strikes me like a 1970s John Mayer or a Keith Urban in that he was a massive pop star, um, but also like a really serious guitar player. So there'd be, I'd imagine a large slab of the audience would turn up, not not aware he's going to melt their faces with his guitar playing. Well, he came out of Humble Pie, man. So he was the guitar player in Humble Pie and Stevie Mm. Marriott was the singer. So Humble Pie, like worldwide, probably not a huge name, but yeah. they had some success obviously in the UK. More in Europe, um, yeah. And a little bit in America and it filtered through to Australia. But I always thought this album, and he's admitted it, was recorded live in the studio. Really? Yeah. I'm pre- almost pretty certain it was recorded live in the studio and okay. the audience – Noise was added. It's one of those ones. He's never shied away from it. I've been sure he's always admitted oh, that it was recorded live in the studio, but it was all recorded live. Like, no, they didn't really overdub anything. But yeah, mm-hmm. one of those things, one of those <clears throat> tricky things of the 70s that they did. Yeah. Well, I mean, the 70s live album was really a big event. I mean, nowadays where you can access almost anything live. Um, at least through YouTube, but um, yeah, yeah, wow. All right, well, two out of three of my albums are not really very live so far, but they had, they had <laughs> more mouth sounds. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, there you go. But a great record nonetheless. Oh, and Frampton, yeah, made him a, a massive, massive household name. Yeah. All right, let's keep going here. Um, Hendrix is an artist we covered recently on the show. Rob, you've got Band of Gypsies for Hendrix Live. Now, this obviously came out after he passed away because it was recorded on uh, it was recorded over a couple of nights, but um, mostly on the first of January, nineteen seventy, at the Fillmore East, and it was again Hendrix in trio mode after coming off Woodstock with a big band, Gypsy Sun and Rainbows, and that kind of. He'd, he'd sort of dipped his toe in the water with that sort of thing. Yeah, but he yeah. pulled it back um, to do these shows at the Fillmore East uh, with Billy Cox on bass and Buddy Miles on drums. Um, it's a very different kind of set. It doesn't have his huge hits in it. And it was filmed. So I've got a DVD of this where they found all the old – they thought the footage was lost – um, and they've sort of pieced the whole show together from some sort of horrible black and white footage from a camera up in the bleachers and then they've got stage shots and it's killer and it's been remastered and it sounds amazing. Um, but at the time, Hendrix was really trying to connect with um, the African-American people in his home country of the United States so this is kind of a bit of a statement band, the three um, African-Americans um, on stage playing politically driven music like Machine Gun, Changes, mm. Power to Love, Message to Love, all those sorts of things. And because it was being recorded, um, on the footage you can see Hendrix, he doesn't really do any of his antics. He stands yeah, very yeah. still on stage. It's a very measured performance and he really just wanted to concentrate on playing well um, and keeping everything um, together. So there's none of the fireworks gimmicky stuff playing with his teeth yep. behind his head. Like there's none of that. It's really simple. <clears throat> and 
because of that, it's probably his sort of shining light as far as live performances go. You can argue he, as a full show or little moments in the past, he's had better moments like Monterey Pop Festival or Isle mm. of Wight or Woodstock. But as a whole show, it's he's almost impeccable. Um, for me, that the guitar in Who Knows is the sound that I want to go out on stage with. If I could choose a guitar sound to go out on stage and do my own thing and not have to sound like this or sound like that, I would probably go for that guitar sound. It's just, it's beautiful. It's got the Univibe. It's got the Octiva or Octavia. Um, and it's just, it's loud and punchy and it's distorted and fuzzy but clean. It's just amazing and it's a power trio record like you wouldn't believe. Machine Gun is obviously, you know, extremely yeah. a powerful song and the message yeah. and the performance of that is great. Um, Eddie Kramer, our studio mixing engineer, Bob Ludwig who we've talked about before, mastering engineer. And it's funny, Hendrix didn't like this record um, and he, he self-produced it and he really struggled to put it out because this was recorded for a contract. So he needed to um, provide an album for a contract that he was trying to get oh, out wow. of. Okay. So it was done for that. Um, I think it was Jack Douglas um, had signed him to a multi-album deal and he still needed to uh, present them with a record. So that's what this one was. It was um, it received mixed reviews mostly because they thought that the band didn't sound together and that this you know but I think it was probably more because the hits weren't there you yeah. because when yeah, it originally sure. came out years later they put Foxy Lady a version of that on it and hear my trainer coming but it was really all new songs um, and Billy Cox singing um, and a Buddy Miles song so yeah. But as a live record and as a little snapshot into Hendrix just a mere weeks or a month before he passed away, yeah, 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 it's um it's really <clears throat> telling and it's it's a fantastic like little showpiece for him, I think. Yeah. Definitely, definitely. With all that showbiz stuff he was putting to the side, um uh, you know, the story's musically as well that he was he was planning to work with I think it was Gil Evans, the the arranger and um yeah. It's really interesting to think what where he might have ended up musically in the in the well, in the following years. Didn't didn't George Benson say that if he would still be alive, he'd probably be like the greatest jazz guitar player ever, <laughs> or something? It was something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Right, right, yeah. yeah, yeah, amazing. But cool record and a good snapshot, um, especially as we covered, um, you know, his first album. Are yeah. you experienced a few yeah. episodes ago? And this is essentially his last yeah. uh, living one. Hey, Jack Douglas, was he – was Jack Douglas? Yeah, I think so. From I'm just off the top of my head from the book I read years ago. It's a different yeah, Jack yeah. Douglas though than the one I think you're <clears> thinking of. Oh, I'm thinking of the producer who still released a lot of Hendrix stuff yeah. after his death and, and pretty controversially that know, is him, got, yeah. got other musicians in and overdubbed and did all sorts of things for the recording. Yeah, he was, just keep churning out the material. He was pretty horrible to Hendrix. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just wanted, you know, just wanted to make money off him, and Hendrix mm. just knew that and wanted out. 
And yeah. so in order yep. to get out, he had to give a few records to him. And I think there was a greatest hits and there was a couple of live records that they gave him. And yeah. So yeah, but tragic story, but for that, yep. for this to be his book ended, you know, yeah. record um, of his last, more well, one of his last live performances, I think it, it is, yeah, it's the encyclopedia of Hendrix yeah, yeah, in yeah. one record, one live record. Yeah, yeah, awesome. Awesome. Excellent. All right, let's keep going here. Ramstein live <laughs> Aus Berlin. <laughs> well, let's... let's, uh, who, guess, let's who picked this one? Let's who change the mood a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> so Ramstein live Aus Berlin. Now, I picked that one. That Like uh, Portishead, that's kind of the album that got me into the band and um this came through another friend of mine my friend michael uh michael dutton if you, i don't know if you're listening michael hello um i'm actually going to be doing a band gig with him this is so rare for me to do band gig uh, next yeah. month in, <laughs> nice. uh, so uh yeah anyway is this, is this the australian ramstein show <laughs> the australian Ram yeah yeah exactly yes yes nice uh, uh, you know you being, say, a, how- being a big buff uh guy who speaks german uh <laughs> yeah <laughs> you're the right guy how do you pronounce the name? I feel like Rammstein. 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 Okay. And you got to say it with that voice. Rammstein. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, I'll uh, practice. I'll practice later. Yeah. Yeah. We'll 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 we'll, we'll do a private you know lesson okay. thing. <laughs> and I'll practice um, setting myself on fire. <laughs> well, so and that's one of the things I love about that band. It's just the, the theatrics. If you watch the concert, um, there is some slightly you know maybe rated ma plus kind of stuff or r stuff going on but (laughs) there's also um just a light the show is fantastic so uh rammstein a german band uh originates from berlin uh this is basically a live album uh that was part of a tour for the second album which was kind of the massive breakthrough album which was a tour that ended up lasting four years of almost non-stop touring worldwide. Wow. Which made brutal. them go from a relatively unknown band in Germany that that sort of was part of a new wave of music called uh, Neue Deutsche Härte, which means new German hard, hard music stuff. Hard, nice. Hardness? I don't know. That sounds maybe a little bit wrong as well. But, you know, heavy, new German heavy hard music. Uh, and yeah. it sort of propelled them to being a massive worldwide band. And they are in the, you know, tens of millions of albums selling bands now. So they are, you know, and stadium filling bands. Um, so uh, the band formed in Berlin in 1994. Um, uh, it's sort of that style of music was a style of music combining bits of metal, but then also bits of almost like industrial and techno. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's sort of very groove-based. So there is almost like a like a techno groove to it. Actually, great drummer. Really, really good drummer to do it in a band. But um, So you've got a keyboard player uh, and sort of synth guy who does a lot of electronic stuff. Then you've got the two buff, muscly German chugga-chugga guitar player dudes. Um, the bass player usually has lots of gaffer tape around his head. Um, and the big buff singer up the front who blows things up and fire everywhere and is on fire himself and um, and fu- rock and roll a super rock and roll and in the early days um, in and during that tour the singer he did all the um, stage pyrotechnics himself so it was all him doing it himself uh, and there's a lot of pyrotechnics if you watch it so um, 
Basically, they formed in Berlin in 1994. They won a local band competition that same year, which won them some um, studio time, basically. They recorded a demo, sent it to a bunch of labels, got signed to Motor Music through sending out these demos, released the first album in 95, uh, and then did lots of touring in the sort of German-speaking area in Germany, Austria, Switzerland, uh, but also going into France and sort of Central Europe mainly. Um, 97, they released their second album uh, called Sehnsucht, um, and it it uh, uh, debuted at number one in Germany and Austria, and it, like I said, it turned into a four-year-long tour that made him huge worldwide. Um, and this was sort of right in the middle of that, just as they were getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and uh, it was their biggest concert uh, to date, playing in front of 17,000 people. So this was, uh, did I mention that? Released August 31, 1999, and recorded at two nights in Berlin on August 22nd and 23rd in 1998. And both nights, full capacity, which was about 17,000 people. Um, so, I mean, their band, again, acquired taste, uh, whether you're into that kind of stuff or not, not sure. I, again, I love the 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 mix of the electronic, the beats, the kind of uh, uh, that sort of techno style or electronic music style kind of soundscapes that that the dude on the keyboards is creating. Yeah, yeah. I mean that era too. Like we're looking at Nine Inch Nails, that kind yeah, of yeah. white zombie industrial flavor. White zombie, yeah. yes. That, that that's sort of similar sort of thing. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I, I mean again, White Zombie. Actually, just recently, I, I started listening to White Zombie again. I, I, I used to love White Zombie and Rob Zombie. I love his solo stuff, and I love Nine Inch Nails. Um, so you know, I, I love that sort of stuff. And and combining these sort of elements, but combining it very very groove based, sort of four on the floor, um, you know, yeah, yeah. beats. You know, um, you can dance to it, or you could set yourself on fire to it, whichever one you want. <laughs> well, and I mean, that's a cool thing, you know, like songs like if you watch the song Rammstein, which is the song named after themselves. You know, it's got this big, big electronic intro, and then the yeah, singer yeah, yeah. comes up. It's sort of an elevator part that comes up on stage, and he's standing there in a coat, which is on fire, and he sings the whole song on fire. <laughs> I mean, just that. How cool is that? And then he, he there's, a, you know, another thing has his boots that shoot rockets everywhere, and then he has his big bow and arrow that shoots rockets everywhere, and um, it's just great. I just love the theatrics. I love, you know, and there's some, again, more mature rated stuff that's going on as well in in one uh-huh. or two songs but i mean yeah uh watch it because it's great if you, the thing is a lot of people take it i think like all that sort of stuff if you take it too serious then you know you're an idiot in my opinion but <laughs> you need to take you need to look at it sort of at um don't take please, it too seriously. Please send your letters to uh yeah. <laughs> the guitar speak podcast care of Gabor Jessica yeah, me again me again box uh, I'll forward them on. Yeah, yeah. forward it on to me. <laughs> no, but you know what I mean. It's one of those things. Don't take it too seriously. Just watch it for what it is. And it's just, yeah, uh, yeah, it's, yeah. I don't think, if you listen to interviews with them, there's a lot of German interviews with them, but if you listen to English interviews with them, they don't take themselves very seriously either. Uh-huh. And it's an act, you know. They're, they're, they're very soft-spoken people when you listen to interviews. And, okay. you know, they, they don't wear black outfits and stuff like that. They're, you know, they're, they're, they're normal people. But they yeah. just do this massive stage show, and it's just part of it, and they just play heavy music. And the other thing I just wrote down just for the guitarist out there, uh, rhythm guitarist Paul Landers uh, in those days mostly played, um, or Paul Landers, it would be said, plays Music Man Axis guitars. Uh, nice. Lead guitarist Richard Kruspe uh, plays ESP, has been playing ESP 
for ages has now a signature ESP, which has almost a bit of a Moserite kind of look to it. Uh, both are Mesoboogie guys, so dual rectifiers, um, uh, and some angle amps maybe every once in a while in there as well. And uh, Richard Kruspe, uh, the lead guitarist, has his own uh, signature series um, amp plugin through Native Instruments, which is called Ramfire, where they sampled his <laughs> studio amp, which is That's a great. Uh, dual rectifier, and you, you can have his sort of sound. Um, yeah, so that's that. Uh, have, have you have any of you guys ever listened to Rammstein before? Not not heaps, not, not heaps. <laughs> but yeah. I but I have heard some. Yeah. I will say the guitars are brutal. Yeah, and and hearing metal sung in German makes it like twice as scary. Yeah, <laughs> and the funny thing is, if you but the the thing is, a lot of the stuff he says. I mean, there's some darker stuff too, but. When you listen to interviews, he took a lot of um, inspiration from Malene Dietrich, you know, the, the old, you oh, know, okay. your oldie singer. And I mean, she's not metal, but she, he wanted that sort of voice, that kind of low um, spoken, uh-huh. very sort of like this, you know, kind of voice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, he took a lot of influences from Malene Dietrich. So, I mean, that's coming again from a ye oldie kind of yeah, German yeah, yeah. folk songs almost, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. So, um yeah, yeah it's it's vaudeville, the vaudeville, vaudeville yeah. kind of influence, yeah. and that's it is. It's it's just it's performing. It's just art, performing art. Basically, that's what they do, and they just do it a little bit different to what most other people would do. <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't know much about them, but I remember um, I'm coming across as a guy who watches lots of TV, but. Um, hey, channel, that's, uh, that's the musicians' live, yeah. Isn't it? Channel Channel V at. The height of their popularity, and they they would take, they would go on the road with Big Day Out. So yeah. you'd get to see behind the scenes mm. of the Big Day Out, and you'd see a song here or two or a set of someone, and yeah. that's kind of where I got uh, exposed to Ramstein was yeah. on that, and they were obviously just showing where he sets himself on fire, and yeah, it's yeah. crazy. But yeah, it was a carnival on stage. It was awesome. Oh, it's it's a yeah. massive stage show, massive stage show. I saw Nine Inch Nails in, I think it was the 2000 Big Day Out. It was such a good year. There was Chili Peppers, Foo Fighters, Blink, um, all the Aussie bands as well. But there was the, the dual stages at the, the um, Sydney showgrounds. And um, so the crowd on the floor, I was back in the stadium, but the, the crowd on the floor would kind of merge towards whichever band they wanted to see most. So there was just this sea of black in front of the Nine Inch Nails stage <laughs> it was <coughs> before they came on. You I, could just see it slowly merge over. It was epic. I saw Nine Inch Nails in oh, maybe 95, 6, 5 okay, yeah, yeah. at Alternative Nations. Does anyone remember? There was one yeah. tour. Oh, yeah. And it yeah, had like yeah. Faith No More. And, and, and yeah. anyway, and it was the same. It was the two stages. Yeah. And I think it was Nine Inch Nails, and then it was Faith No More after, or maybe it was Faith uh-huh. No More and then Nine Inch Nails. They were the two finish, the two last acts, yeah. and they always the stage where the bands didn't play. They had this yeah. massive curtain, yes. that was closed, and then you had the you know, and they were setting up behind it. And I remember Nine Inch Nails came on, and they had this sort of pulsating electronic beats and lights flashing behind the curtain, and then you could see someone, and there were big screens too, and you could see someone, like, which was Trent Reznor, jumping at the big big curtain. And he was just yanking at it, pulling it, and that, he ripped the whole curtain and about half of the lighting rig down. <laughs> and that's how Nine Inch Nails started the show. It was fantastic, and it absolutely trashed everything on stage. It was well, fantastic. I had a mate who worked on that tour, like in okay. the book, 
booking, like tour managing, and it was an abject failure. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Pretty much the whole thing got rained out. It was like record rain that year and just followed the tour around. Yeah, yeah, And it was a complete bust. That's why it only happened once. (laughs) But such good bands. And Chili Peppers were meant to be on it, but um, I think Anthony Kiedis and Stone Temple Pilots were meant to be on it too. But um, it was was a great – I mean, this has nothing to do with Rammstein, but – uh, yeah. It was a great, um, great lineup, and and anyway, go check out Rammstein. <laughs> Rammstein. <laughs> well, not dissimilar to Rammstein, our next album, Dire Straits, <laughs> on the night, <laughs> almost the same. I'm glad you no, made that. I, I thought I was going to be the only one who could draw parallels between those two. <laughs> I mean, job. I mean, what other podcast really in the world could you have hey? Hendrix? Come on. Followed by Rammstein, followed by Dire Straits. You are I'm, not going to get this anywhere else, nah, ladies and only gentlemen. Only place in the world. Oh, <laughs> it's a cultural thanks. revolution here, folks. <laughs> Absolutely. It is. It is. Now, Dire Straits on the night 93. I saw that tour, so I've got a soft spot for this live oh, cool. album. For me, I mean, the whole idea of a greatest hits album, um, I, I, I've been toying with bringing a Dire Straits record to, to this series. Um, but but the 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 trip up for me has been there's for me I mean Mark Knopfler's had many phases in his career but I've got two main ones in Dire Straits it's Mark Knopfler mainly playing a Strat then it's Mark Knopfler playing a lot of Les Paul um, and and I love both both kind of eras so if I chose one album I'd be just missing out on a whole other side that I really like so this album kind of straddles that although it's still not as much as I'd like. But anyway, it was it was recorded in 93. It was um, Dire Straits touring after their final album, which was called On Every Street. Uh, so that came out early 90s. And it followed up the mega hit that was Brother, Brothers in Arms mm. uh, with Money for Nothing and, and all that all that stuff on there. So I, I love Dire Straits. In fact, I've got, for the people... At home with the special glasses, I've I've got my Dire Straits ah, tab book. Uh, Brothers in Arms. Well, pre-tab, before tab was popular, ah. uh, I bought this in '84, and all the solos have been notated in ah. musical notation, which took me a long time to work oh, out. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, so you can see that that stain <clears throat> is cricket bat oil, linseed oil. So my sure. two great loves sure, in sure. the '80s were, uh, <laughs> dude, were uh, di- guitars and cricket bats. Okay. So, so this album had a lot of hits from Brothers in Arms. Had a few tunes from On Every Street, which are not bad tunes, but not not the mega hits. But for the oldies, there was Telegraph Road and Romeo and Juliet, and those tunes went for about ten minutes each. Just super long, extended versions of already long songs. And there's a little bit of the older Dire Straits guitars and that and that kind of tones. But man, killer band, killer band. Phil Palmer on rhythm guitar, who also played with Clapton for many years. Um, oh my gosh, I'm gonna, I've got to look this up and drop it in. The, there was a pedal steel player on the tour because at this stage, Knopfler had just started the Notting Hillbillies. He was getting really into uh, the whole Nashville scene. And even though there were some country uh, influences in some of his playing, he was really exploring it on those albums. So. I've got to look this up. I should have written it down. Dire Straits. It's cool because I um, I'm was never a big Dire Straits fan. Obviously, Brothers in Arms was everywhere, and Money for Nothing, yep. great. 
But I really like that era with Calling Elvis and Heavy Fuel. I thought both yeah. of those songs were killer. And is that kind of like the Les Paul era for him? Because it was much more of a distorted, heavier tone on that yeah. on every street record. Definitely. And, I mean, on Brothers in Arms, he's got the Les Paul out for, you know, Money for Nothing yeah. and and the title track Brothers, Brothers in Arms, which is, I think, it's just absolutely beautiful phrasing and tone. He's into that... Um, the green out of phase kind of tone um, with the two humbuckers out of phase to each other. It's it's fantastic. Because speaking of him live, he played that live at Nebworth. Um, it was either like yeah, late 80s, yeah. early 90s and he got up and he played a couple of songs with Clapton's band was the backing band yep. um, and that was killer. He played a guitar on that. Um, was it Valley Arts? Did he play Valley Arts guitars for a little while? He played Pencil Sir for for oh, a while. Sir that Valley Arts. That's right. That's right. Before so became, the yeah. Flame Maple. Yeah. Floyd. Floyd, but without a bar. Yeah, because yeah, it kind of looks like a Tom Anderson or something, doesn't it? It's that kind of vibe, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And live, he was playing that guitar a lot. He was playing the Les Paul a lot. He still got the Strat out for all the hits, all the Sultans of Swing, Tunnel of Love era, which I really love. But yeah, and then by on every street, it's there's a lot of Les Paul going on mm. there. It's like he discovered them in the in the mid eighties and. Um, made some cool stuff out of it. Yeah, good decision, a great decision. I, I, yeah. I just remember, I remember when we first got <laughs> the Rob Road story. I remember when we first got MTV uh, when I still lived in Austria in the oh, late eighties, eighty nine, maybe something like that. Uh-huh. Um, uh, the two Money for Nothing and is it Walk of Life? Is that the other yeah. one? Uh, yep. Where it's all the like sports injuries and cars and yeah, yeah that, that was clip. the video. It was a great uh, video. That was every nonstop on MTV. Yep. That was just every every third video was one of those. <laughs> yeah, that was great all I videos. From that. Money for nothing had the really cool kind of animated video. Yeah, the the square like almost um, a Minecraft looking. Um, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah Max nice. Headroom and then Sting, Sting, like Sting, yeah. So good, man. And, um, and wasn't yeah. that just, I mean, I mean, totally again, unrelated to the live album, wasn't that just because he recorded in a studio next door or something like that? Wasn't that the story? That's why he came. They, Sting recorded in the studio next door to Dire Straits and they met up in the kitchen area or something like that. And then oh, Mark Knopfler right. invited him and he did that. I want my MTV. Nice. I think that's, that's cool. Is that the, I'm pretty sure that's the story. Well, it is, good. it is now. It is now. Yeah. It's yeah. fact. If I say it, it's fact. It's, it's on. Podcast. It's on. I'm updating Wikipedia as we speak. It's done. <laughs> to tie in with the episodes, I like. I've that. referenced Thank you. you and this podcast as yeah. the um, yeah. as the factual check. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Paul. Paul Franklin was the pedal steel player on that tour, and he played on the on every street album. Okay. But hearing him rip on stuff like. Money for Nothing was awesome. Like he, he'd pull out like a distorted tone a la um, um, who's the dude? Robert Randolph. Oh, kind yeah. of, that, kind of, that kind of thing. But he'd also do more country stuff and more atmospheric. So that was real. I really loved hearing that. But I've got to say the greatest Die Straits live album never released was um, the simulcast. And I think I might have mentioned this somewhere on a podcast, uh, simulcast from their final Sydney show in 1986. Mm. And this is when on the, the Brothers in Arms tour, they were, they were probably maybe the biggest band in the world. And, um, and they did 
show after show at the City Entertainment Center, and they kept adding shows, and they did 20, 20 something shows, breaking Elton John's record or something. So by the last show, there, there weren't, there wasn't anyone left in Australia that hadn't seen the show live. But just in case, um, they <laughs> they simulcasted on TV on Channel Nine or something, and got one of the FM stations, I think it was Triple M, to to play the music. Play the music. I guess it's the equivalent of a live stream. Yeah, but back. Back in the mid-80s, this was a massively big deal. So I got my little tape deck out and I put it near the speaker, the mono speaker of the stereo, uh, not of the stereo, of my TV. Yeah. Because uh, kids' TVs only had one speaker back yeah. then. Well, and, that, was, um, that was the thing, wasn't it? Because I remember it. those two. You, you, you watch it on TV, but then you have the radio with the two speakers on if it's simulcast. Yeah. And so you listen yep. through the radio, so you hear the music better, but you watch it on TV. And then often there'd be a little bit of a lag as well. It wouldn't be yes. quite in sync. Yeah. But, I mean, that yeah. was all part of it. It, it was, was great. Because <laughs> everyone had half-decent hi-fis back then. So yeah. like my parents had a half-decent hi-fi. So compared to what every – even if you had a big TV back then, like, yeah. Yeah. you know, 15 inches or 20 <laughs> – that was a big TV. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then it was, and, but, but it was about 30 inches deep as well. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but it had a tiny little three inch speaker in it. So yeah. when they did the simulcasts, and we've talked about these before, we talked about the John Farnham one. And, the Farnham, that's yeah. right. Yeah. That's and right. that um, you just crank the stereo yeah. and sit in front of the TV. It was just amazing. Like, it's oh, magical. Those yeah. days. Those yeah. days have been lost. Kids nowadays, they don't, they yeah. just don't know what they're missing. And they just go yeah. on YouTube and watch someone who's recorded on their phone distorted. While yeah. sitting on the toilet, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this band sucks. Yeah. So, um, yeah, and I, I had that cassette for years and years until I wore it out and I knew what how they ended all these songs that were fade-outs on the record. So if ever I played some of those songs live. I still get do Money for Nothing in some bands that gets called. I still remember how they ended it in the Sydney show back then. Yeah. And um, I just found it on YouTube. It's been posted on YouTube a couple of times. Okay. So I'm super stoked. Anyway, that's, uh, that's Dire Straits. On the Night, 93, Mark Knopfler. Dude, what a player. Let's move along. Rob, we're up to you now. Um, you've got something special to... Uh, to toss in the mix now. I do. So um, because we were talking about live albums, I put it to um, our followers on my Living in the 70s Facebook page for them to vote for their favourite live album of the 70s. And I put up for grabs um, a little merch pack uh, for people who voted and if they voted for the winning one. Uh, so I'm happy to announce that... Uh, the winning album, which I knew would be the case when we started, and Matt, you were onto this on the comments section too, was Neil Diamond's Hot August Ooh, Night. Yes. Um, yeah, it won by quite by twice as many votes as the second uh, place, Deep Purple, made in Japan. And then nice. your selection tonight, uh, Frampton Comes Alive, came in third. Um, so the winner, um, I'll give Trixie Wilson. A shout out. She won a t-shirt and a living in the 70s stubby cooler. Uh -huh. Yeah, um, Trixie. And we'll get that out to her. But thanks to everyone who voted and got involved in the discussion. There was some really great records put up, including yeah. Billy Thorpe's Live at Sunbury, um, Neil Young Live Rust, and yes. Yes. the Rolling Stones Get Your Yaya's Out. So um, that got quite a few votes too. And unfortunately... 
with one vote is my next album. How's that for a, how's that for a segue? Was that, was that what, were you well, the vote? No, <laughs> I, I abstained from voting. Before before we get to the, to your one vote album, um, Rob, thanks for doing that. That was awesome seeing all those records and so many living in the seventies fans jump in. It was unreal. So I just wanted to join in. I wasn't trying to win anything, but I did want to just push Neil Diamond over the line. <laughs> the the reason being, if I could just quickly sure. uh, indulge myself, is that um, every Christmas my family went to holidays, same place, same caravan park in our pop up caravan. We had a big old caravan. It just lived at the caravan park. We never took it anywhere. And um, on rotation, every night on a cassette player that just went on loop was Neil Diamond's Hot August Night. So Wait, I would oh. hear that. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, man. I'd hear that album three or four times every night on holidays. We'd never play it when we were at home. It was just Christmas holidays, a couple of weeks. And um, I love that record. So is that now um, you're, you're getting in the swing of Christmas album? It's like, okay, got to get into Christmas mood. Let's put on some Neil Diamonds. <laughs> did you put yeah. a sticker over it that just said Hot December Nights? Yeah, we did. That's what yeah. we did. Yeah, and then, I thought um, so. It was Makes great. Sense. So barbecue dinner, then you play cards until midnight and just listen to Neil Diamond. But that's when I realized, I thought, what's he saying? Because he says all that, like, good Lord and all these really cool things. But throughout the night, he's gone, Rich Air, take it rich. And he's talking about Rich Richard Bennett, the lead guitarist. Yeah. Uh-huh. And I just thought that was the coolest. You'd say Richie and then Richie. That's great. <laughs> anyway, anyway. Richard Bennett ended up playing with uh, Mark Knopfler for many, many years as well as his oh, sideman as his solo nice. career. Anyway, thanks for, yeah, thanks uh, living in the 70s. Fans, you've, you've come up with a heap of albums I wish I picked for tonight, but we'll again, we'll revisit this idea, I think, in the future. I, I think but so. now we're going to do one that you guys didn't want us to do. Yeah. <laughs> what's, what's the one vote one? Well, one vote, a very astute follower of Living Absolutely. in the Stevies, obviously of like the highest class and taste that there is. Um, but yeah, <laughs> my, last, my last pick was uh, Led Zeppelin's Song Remains the Same. Um, how, like... Obviously, it's a more famous film than the record. The record sure. was released as a soundtrack. Um, so maybe I'm going to probably talk about the film more than the album um, because how can you go past uh, John Bonham in uh, a drag car, John it's Paul Jones dressed as movie. like, you know, <laughs> the Knights of the Round Table. Um, like there's just Robert Plant. Down by a stream with his, you know, swimming around with his kids, and Jimmy Page doing weird, like occult <laughs> things. It's just, it's, it's a crazy film. Oh yeah, but, but I've never seen it. Really? Really? Oh man, you got to get into like the the No Quarter. Start there. Okay. <laughs> Start with No Quarter. I don't think it's on YouTube because you can't get any Led Zeppelin stuff on YouTube. Mm, I have it on VHS. Not, not even Rick Beato. <laughs> Rick Beato can't even get Led Zeppelin stuff on there. Um, That's that then. <laughs> Beato. Beato. Uh, <laughs> check out Little Stinkers, by the way. Yeah, yeah. The new Kid Rock with Monster Truck. <laughs> yeah. Oh. <laughs> oh. Too good. Yeah, oh. too good. Um, anyway, I digress. Led Zeppelin, the song remains the same. Now, yeah. it kicks off with the only way you could kick off a Led Zeppelin live record, drum intro to rock and roll. Yeah. yeah. Like you couldn't 
couldn't wish to open it any better. And with Robert Plant singing down and quite possibly out of tune, but I'm not going to. Um, when he sings like that, he can start a show any way he wants. Um, yeah. It was 1976, and it, the the filming took place in the summer of 73 during three nights of shows at Madison Square Garden, New York City, um, with additional footage shot at Shepard and Studio. So, again, just talking about the, the film. John Bonham, drums. John Paul Jones, bass, Jimmy Page, Robert Plant, and another Eddie Kramer, engineering oh, he's feet. He's everywhere, here. man. Like, yeah. He was the guy. Um, so a track listing of, okay, so if you just look at, I'm going to go to the movie because the movie has all of the tracks. Um, rock and Roll, Black Dog, Since I've Been Loving You, No Quarter, Song Remains the Same, The Rain Song, Dazed and Confused, which... That goes off into some weird places visually horses, as well. Is that the one where they then the horses riding yeah. mid song and stuff? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's trippy. <laughs> Stairway to Heaven, Moby Dick, <clears throat> which is you know John Bonham in John his Bonham. drag car, yeah. and I think Jason makes a little appearance in there. Oh, really? It's been a while since I've seen it. Heartbreaker and close out with whole lot of love and massive powder kegs of fireworks, you know, like it's crazy. Surprised no one died. Um, but for me, the picks that Jimmy, Jimmy in the intro of since I've been loving you cemented to me that I wanted to play guitar and visually the guitar sounds great. It's that in between sort of out of phase, Jimmy page sound quintessential, um, thing that everybody wants. And, this really weird psychedelic video effects of him splitting, you know, into two and into three. And uh, it's just, it's State killer. of the art, 1972. State effects, of the yeah. art. Like, <laughs> there's some ones during Stairway to Heaven, I think, where Robert Plant, they're doing the mirror effect where it goes into himself. So he just ends up like two legs and a massive torso in the middle. And um, yeah, it's, there's some, it's a it's a snapshot of the time and what these guys were into and yeah, um, <laughs> but they mostly play great, um, mostly together. But it's again, it just captures a time. Yeah, and there's not much of the Led Zeppelin stuff out there. A lot of it never saw the light of day for whatever reason. It wasn't great, or there were issues with the recordings. But as far as live video footage with quality audio, this is the thing, you know. Oh, to, from those days, get, yeah, absolutely. Um, it's really well recorded. It's clean. Rhythm section's killer and they hold everything together as, as usual. And, you know, Jimmy's known as not being the most consistent live player. Does mm. he make mistakes? Yes. Is he sloppy? Yes. Yeah. But he's Jimmy Page and no one else does it like him. Oh. And this is a good show for him, um, I think, if you're going to get into Led Zeppelin, if you're not already into them um, and you want to see what their live show is like, I think this captures it brilliantly and it is a live record um, from all the things that I went to. There's no real mentions of overdubs. Um, it seems that 
was basically done. There's a 2007 reissue um, where it was remixed and mastered uh, and a few extra tracks added. But look at the name. So Bob, Lod- Bob Ludwig again mm. remastering. Yeah. <clears throat> Jimmy Page produced it. Kevin Shirley remixes it. Um, as well as you know Eddie Kramer, I'm not sure what if he had much to do with the two seven, uh, the 07 reissue, but Kevin Shirley, he's you know the he is the go to rock producer at the moment for that sound, you know, yeah. the big sound. So um, that included um, non album releases: Black Dog, Over the Hills, Far Away, Misty Mountain Hop, um, Since I've Been Loving You, The Ocean, and Heartbreaker, and features liner notes by Cameron Crowe. Oh, wow. So um, oh, you can pick nice. that up and get a few bonuses um, from that. But, yeah, just a great record. What are, what are yeah. your thoughts on this record, Matt? Well, same thing, um, I guess touching on what you said there, like, um, sorry, English, second language. It's just, <laughs> hang on, how do you say it? What the? Everyone needs a drink right now. All right. Yeah, similar to what you're saying, you know, Jimmy Page, his reputation as a live player, but I don't know, I reckon he sounds massive on this. And yeah. there's some obviously live bits, but I always like hearing those things on a record. Um, it makes I mean, it's it more interesting. Tight, it gives a character. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's not as tight as Kiss Alive, sure. No problem. <laughs> we all get that. <laughs> but I, yeah, I reckon he sounds great. He's, he's got a swagger in his playing. So if if he's going for it and he's not joining every single dot, I, it, it's fun for me. I, I love it. Yeah. How about you, Gabor? Much uh, Led Zeppelin in there for you? I, I, I love Led Zeppelin. Yeah, yeah, I'm a fan of Led Zeppelin. Uh, no, no Quarter actually was – I was almost thinking about doing No Quarter for this because that was, again, another – that actually got me into Led Zeppelin, No Quarter. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, he's he's a sloppy player. Um, but I mean, he's Jimmy Page. I mean, the the thing that sort of says it all to me with Jimmy Page when you watch, uh, it might get loud. You know that. that yeah. Um, yeah. 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 And you see a guy like the Edge. I mean, possibly one of the biggest bands of our lifetimes, almost mm. right in you two. Yeah. And you see him looking at Jimmy Page playing yeah. some riff in front yeah. of him, and, and he's like. Oh my God! This is Jimmy Page standing yeah. in front of me. I mean, just yeah. that says it all to me about Jimmy Page. You yeah. know, there's a guy who's on another plane to just about everyone else. Yeah. And yeah. if he's sloppy, he's sloppy. He can be sloppy because he wrote some of the greatest songs ever. I reckon. Yeah. yeah. So, um, but yeah, the, the 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 that whole movie. What a trip! Yeah. <laughs> it's it's so bizarre. All this stuff that all of a sudden happens mid song. <laughs> yeah, there's it's a whole. Weird. Yeah, it's, it gets into that medieval thing, and there's yeah. nothing that really <clears throat> connects at all. No, nah, you know? I guess nah. trying to create visuals for the songs based on each band but, member, and but then you kind of go that. They're riding on horses through like cobblestone old town with like torches yeah. and stuff, and you go, "What has that got to do with anything?" <laughs> but it's bizarre. But it's 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 just cool. It's I I really like it. It's um it's one of those I've watched it a few times, quite a few times in my I had a VHS copy. I still have it somewhere, and uh, I remember watching it lots. And it's just it's just cool. I mean, it's just and just the way they look on stage and the way they do stuff. It's just cool. They were just, 
Yeah, you get, an ins- you get the insight into Peter Grant a bit too in it, which is uh, interesting. And I used to just go and hire for a week from the video shop, <laughs> like go down to the local video shop, hire that for a week, or I'd just get like four or five $1 weeklies and just sit at home and watch them. And that was that's, one of them. And that's, yeah. that's, that's back in the days, kids, when you had to drive to a shop that would hire <laughs> out videos and you would take them home and watch them in really crappy quality on VHS. <laughs> yeah. But no, they were, you know, they were good quality on because they were, um, you know, the ones that video shops get were yeah. like better quality, thicker tape, just better yeah. everything, than, yeah, you know, yeah. better resolution, all that stuff because they had to last longer. But yeah, I don't know, like the... I guess the Excalibur thing. I was a huge fan of that movie when I was a kid. So having that <laughs> that in the movie was just like, oh, I'm getting two for one deal here. <laughs> uh, but the set list is killer. As oh, I mentioned yeah, before, yeah. the oh, recording hit, of it's hit killer. After hit after hit, yeah, it's yeah, and it's Jimmy Page. You know? Yeah, like yeah. just nothing more needs to be said. Nah, really, exactly right. Yeah. All right, well, not dissimilar to Led Zeppelin. We're up to our final <laughs> album of the night, final live album, Gabor. You've got the floor, man. John Zorn featuring the amazing Mark Rebo yeah. on guitar. So, so, again, I thought I'd pick something that's a little bit sort of left of centre and maybe something that people may not know so much about. But it's an absolute killer band and one of my all-time favourite guitar players. So the album is The Song Project Live. Now, John Zorn, for people that don't know John Zorn, I've probably talked about John Zorn a few times. I mentioned John Zorn a yeah, few yeah, times. Yeah. Yeah. But he's basically a, a New York-based uh, composer, performer, with an insane output of music. I mean, the stuff, the amount of albums he releases every year is insane. He has his own label. He, has, he writes just about any style of music you can possibly imagine – from the craziest electronic noise stuff to beautiful chamber music and everything in between. Um, he has all these different bands that he picks and, and all yeah, sort of yeah. stuff. And, um, uh, but he's, what he's sort of, one of the things he's really well known for is the New York, what they call, what's called the New York downtown improvisational world. Mm-hmm. Um, so he picks a lot of musicians and he does, there's a, a lot of imp- improvisational music based <clears throat> that, that sort of comes out of it. Now, this album, uh, uh, the idea behind this live album was, uh, so John Zorn was sitting um, having lunch with with this guy, Jesse Harris. Now, Jesse Harris, for people that don't know, is a uh, um, songwriter and lyricist, uh, probably best known. He wrote uh, a bunch of the hits for Nora Jones for, uh, he wrote, um, what was it called? Um, um don't know why I didn't oh, come. That but don't first know why. Record. Yeah, yeah, he yeah. Wrote, like, he won a bunch of Grammys for because he wrote five or six songs on that album. Come, come away with me. I think the album was called. Yeah. Is but, he the bass player on that record? No, no. The bass player on that record, I think, was her. Is her boyfriend, husband, boyfriend? Okay. Or whatever. He was. No, I don't think he played. He played some guitar on the on the recording, but okay, I don't think okay. he ever performed with her live. But sure. so he he wrote. Don't know why he wrote a bunch of those hits. <clears throat> Excuse me. That's what he's probably best known with, known for. So uh, John Zorn and him were sitting having lunch, and uh, uh, Jesse Harris was talking about how being a songwriter and working for labels and stuff like that. Very often he gets songs 
given that are complete songs and there's even melodies there and he's just asked to write lyrics. So that gave John Zorn an idea because a lot of John Zorn's music is instrumental music. And he thought, hey, wouldn't it be fun to do something where I invite a bunch of my favorite singers uh, to write lyrics to instrumental songs? And uh, uh, John Zorn was planning, uh, um, this was in, in 2013, uh, John Zorn turned 60. And that year he did, I think for a month or two months or something like that, all over New York, they did a whole bunch of sort of his 60th birthday celebration concert series. And he did, again, every style of music you can possibly imagine. And they did sort of celebrated birthday and, and his music and stuff. So uh, he, the big finale sort of thing for that uh, 60th birthday concert series became this song project. Um, now, uh, so it was released on April 25, 2015 on John Zorn's own label called Zadik. So that's T-Z-A-D-I-K for anyone who wants to know, Zadik. Um, it was recorded on September 29, 2013 at Le Poisson Rouge in New York City, which is, a, I think it's sort of a club known for lots of improvisational music for his 60th birthday concert series. Um, so uh, he invited Jesse Harris. He invited Mike Patton, who we talked about in uh, the uh, infamous Mr. Bungle episode. Uh, he invited Sean Lennon. Uh, uh, John Lennon's son, and he invited Sophia Ray, uh, who's a um, Argentinian singer who actually's got an amazing voice. If you listen to, if you go and listen to, uh, I sent you a link to a concert. It's not that exact concert, but it was filmed in Poland. But it's pretty much the same songs, almost the same songs in the same order. I think there's maybe one or two songs right. that are, but it's pretty much the same thing in the same order. With the same musician, same band, same singers, and everything, uh, so maybe I don't know. Stick that in the show in the show notes or something yeah, like that, cool. possibly, because yeah. it, it's a killer concert. Um, yeah, uh, so uh, he got all these guys to 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 do that. Sean Lennon, for some reason, couldn't be there, but he wrote lyrics for one song, but he didn't actually sing on it. But he wrote lyrics for one song. Now, one of the best things, other than the singers and the songs, is the band, which is. Insane. So the band consists of just giving a quick run through. Uh, oh, actually, I should say. So the band is one of the bands that he created called the Dreamers. So he has a bunch of different acts and bands that he he writes music for, and he gets different musicians that, in his opinion, work well together. And he has one band called the Dreamers, and this band is the Dreamers, which is Syro uh, Baptista on percussion. Now he played with Herbie Hancock, Yo Yo Ma. Winton Masalis, Paul Simon, David Byrne, Brian Eno, Carlos Santana, James Taylor, and, and, and. List is wow. insane, that the people he played yeah. with. On drums, Joey Barron, who played with Stan Getz, Dizzy Gillespie, Bill Frizzell, Chet Baker, and on uh, David Bowie album as well. And there's a David Bowie quote saying, um, he said, uh, Bar um, Barron uh, is making metronomes shake for fear. He's so steady. <laughs> wow. Anyway, that's a David Bowie quote. Uh, on bass, Trevor Dunn, who plays with Mr. Bungle and a uh, bunch of other bands, but amazing bass player as well, playing um, electric and upright bass. Um, now, on organ, piano, and Rhodes is John Medeski, uh, who is maybe some people may have heard of a band called Medeski, Martin, and Wood, which is a sort of jazz trio, which is bass, drums, and organ. Um, 
But I mean, he played uh, when he's a, a, he was a child prodigy, basically. When he was a teenager, he worked with Jacob Pastorius. Uh, he worked with Iggy Pop, Trey Anastasia, um, John Schofield, and Robert Randolph, amongst other people, right? Just to give you an idea, the caliber of the band, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then you have Kill Kenny it. Wallison on Vibes, who played with Tom Waits, Nora Jones, Sean Lennon, Bill Frizzell, and Joel Lurie. Um, I mean, just again, uh, and then you have Mark Rebo on guitar, who played with Jack McDuff, Wilson Pickett, Elvis Costello, Tom Waits, Arthur Lindsay, T-Bone Burnett, Alison Krauss, Robert Plant. The Black Keys, Elton John, McCoy Turner, and so and uh, Tyner, sorry, McCoy Tyner, and many, many, many more. I mean, his list is ridiculously long as well with people he played with. Um, so I mean, that's the band. It's a killer band. The caliber of players is insane. And uh, John Zorn is sort of sitting there. He's almost if you watch the the live footage, he's almost like a conductor, and he has yeah, his signals yeah, yeah. that he worked out. And he because I mean, the way he works in that band, I think there's a certain structure to the song. But then he gets, he points at people and gets them to play more and you play quieter, you play more. He has his hand signals worked out. It's quite interesting to watch. Um, and then you have uh, Jesse Harris, Mike Patton and Sophia Ray on vocals. Um, so just to give you an idea of the caliber of the band. Uh, so next thing I wrote down, Mark Rebo, probably one of my favorite guitars of all time. Very quirky guitar player. Uh, he plays mostly uh, a 63 Jaguar, Fender Jaguar, through a Fender Deluxe Reverb in the show. Uh, can't quite see effects and stuff, but he's known to play the King of Tone. That's sort of one of his pedals that he's known for as an overdrive. Um, he also plays some classical stuff on this, especially with Sophia, uh, Sophia Ray singing. It's sort of flamenco classical kind of style. He actually uh, started up being a classical guitar player, Mark Rebo. He um, had a... Uh, I think friend of the family or neighbor also as well, uh, uh, a guy called Franz Casillas, Casillas, who was from um, a, a Haitian uh, classical guitar player, apparently very well known. I don't know much about him, uh, who was his guitar teacher when he was young. And so he started playing with a classical style. So he's quite proficient as a classical guitar player as well. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, it's just one of those concerts. Again, probably not very well known to a lot of people. But some beautiful songs. Some, and I mean, there is some quirky stuff on there too. Whenever there's Mike Patton involved, there has to be some quirky stuff <laughs> and screaming kind of sort of stuff. But they basically take songs um, like the Batman. So um, um, John Zorn does a lot of his own stuff, but he also does a lot of film music that he covers. But he does his own own interpretation of it. So to do, for example, the an old Batman um, soundtrack, and then Patton screams over it, and all that sort of stuff. But um, if you don't watch anything else. Uh, watch the Sofia Ray songs. Her voice is just insane. And it's sort of that sort of Spanish kind of, she's Argentinian, almost flamenco style guitar playing to a certain degree, but beautiful melodies with some beautiful vibe playing as well. It's just it's just such a great, beautiful album, in my opinion. Did, did any of you guys have a chance to, to check it out? Yeah, I, I had listened. I, um, well, I knew John Zorn through, through his impro stuff. So I've been involved in some jams using some of his um what does he call them um he calls them games or yeah with the cards he has these yeah with the cards the cards yeah. yeah so he has different cards with different symbols on it and then these cards depending on what he holds up um people kind of react to it to a certain degree yeah yeah so i've done some jams with that stuff and also with the the hand signals um, and the hats, like they're taking hats on and off and it's weird stuff. But anyway, so I sort of knew him through that and I knew Mark Rebo mainly through his solo stuff 
and his Alison Krauss stuff. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, to see them working together, I thought it was a really cool a, a cool mix. So I hadn't heard of this project before yeah. you, a lot of people you sent it off to us. Yeah. But, um, yeah, yeah I, I dug it. I dug it because, yeah, there's some really beautiful stuff and then there's Rebo just getting weird. That's the thing. He's Which is so, all good. I like both parts. He's such a multifaceted player, in my opinion. He, he yeah. really can do pretty much anything. So now, now interesting, Rob. <laughs> I, I actually, yeah, I, I didn't get a chance okay. at all to listen to this one, so I'm all at sea. I'm the black sheep on this one. <laughs> That's um, all right. I, I've been in that position lots but of times. It's so. <laughs> it's on my it's in my Spotify playlist, and I just didn't get to it. So, but, but it's there to listen to, and I'll do my as. As I always did as a child, I'll hand my homework in late. Late, yeah. yeah. The dog <laughs> ate it, but it'll come in eventually. No, but if you get a chance, watch it live because just just seeing it is actually it's a it, it's a big part of it as well. And just watching yeah, yeah, the yeah. interaction between the musicians and how he sort of conducts the musos and just the, all that's the other thing. And it's something that it's it's kind of so rare to see. I think nowadays they're just all big smiles and they just love what they're doing you can see all of them just really into it and really loving everything they're doing big smiles the drummer especially is the happiest guy in the world <laughs> um and you know you watch him play and he does it, it and it's it's a lot of it is quite intri- intricate music and um but I just, it's just it's just the thing with zorn it can go you can go anywhere with zorn yes. he can take you anywhere yeah. musically and that's sort of one of the things i really love about it. I, I think maybe people slowly start to find out maybe to a certain degree what sort of makes me tick but for me it's always variety and mm-hmm. and not doing doing things that are different and doing things sort of changing it up and i mean he changes up more than anyone else but check nice. out the dreamers the dreamers and actually they did and it's that's you talking about neil Di- putting neil diamond on christmas the last few <laughs> maybe four or five years yeah something like that one of the christmas traditions at my house is um, so John Zorn and the Dreamers did a Christmas album. <laughs> wow! And um, uh, it's it's again it's really beautiful versions of Christmas kind of songs with Mike Patton singing on it. Some of them and some of them just uh, playing guitar. But uh, the idea, the concept behind it was because they're, it's it, they're all Jewish guys, a mm. bunch of Jewish guys playing, a bunch of Jewish jazz guys playing. Christmas songs. That was sort of the concept behind that. Nice. And it's a really, really good album. And it's, again, a Dreamers. If you get a chance, check out the Dreamers. And there's also Bar Kopka. That's another really good band of his, of, of John Zorn's to check out. Very cool. Well, we've covered 11 live records. I don't reckon... I don't reckon we've ever heard a collection like this no. before in the history <laughs> of musical commentary slash criticism. Yeah. And... Uh, Good job, fellas. Rob, this was such a good idea. And uh, Yeah, thanks, Rob. As I've said, we will have to do this again because there's there's a gazillion other live records. Hey, if you're listening, if you're still listening at home, (laughs) shoot us up. Um, Well, it's been a long show. I I think a great show. But, uh, yeah, if you're listening at home, if there's an album we haven't covered that you're like, what, how could you not cover that? Um, Yeah, send in a a note. We'd We'd love to hear about that. All right. Now, Gabor, when you're not um, cranking up the Zorn around the Christmas tree, um, <laughs> tell the nice people at home about, about what you do. So if you want to hear me talk uh, even more than I do uh, on this show, um, you can check out my YouTube channel called The Super Fun Awesome Happy Time Pedal Show, all one word. Uh, actually, the, the is separate, but everything else is one word. 
Um, and uh, we, it's myself and my friend Alex, and we review pedals and guitars and amps and uh, just uh, general fun banter and, uh, you know, gear nerdiness. It's great, man. And it's that's a great show. It's a very good show. Thanks, Gabor. And Rob, when you're not renting out, the song remains the same <laughs> for a week at a time. <laughs> oh, man. What are you doing? do that? <laughs> um, yeah, I'm just, man, I'm out gigging, thankfully, luckily. Um, and yeah, you yeah. can keep up with everything that I do at roadtripent.com. Uh, actually had my first solo gig in almost three months because the band has been so busy. I haven't, I haven't had any. Um, so that was, that was fun. Something different, but, oh, calluses. Like I I play three, four nights a week and I still don't really have calluses, but after not playing acoustic and then doing a four hour gig last Wednesday, instantly like third finger calloused and, it's so weird, the songs that I haven't played for ages. It was just first time around in the chorus, I would just forget a chord. And then the second time around, oh, I know what that chord is now. And then it's just like, you know, boom, yeah, boom. Yeah. it's that whole comes back to that live thing. And I can see why they'd want to overdub because there's never a time that you play a show that you're going to play it picture perfect. Yeah, and yeah. you just got to um, – it's funny, without notice, uh, I was watching some – podcast last night, Bonamassa, Nerdville one, talking to Marcus King and they were talking about how, you know, you play a gig and it'll be your, you'll feel like it's the worst gig you've done, you didn't play good, you didn't feel like you ever settled and people will come up and go, that's the best show I've seen you do, (laughs) you know. And then the ones where you think this is awesome and giving each other's pats on the back, people come up and go, You were like, there was something off with you guys tonight, you know? (laughs) You can't. Have you had moments like that? Oh, yeah. Heaps of times. Uh, Heaps of times. The amount of times you sit there and you play the gig and there's nothing coming from the audience, nothing, and then you finish and then at the end of and you kind of go, oh, that was so crap. And then you have, I don't know, 10 people coming up to you going, oh, man, that was so good and la, la, la. And, and, you know, totally surprising. And then other gigs where you're buzzing and you're going, and people were into it and everything was kind of cool. And then someone will, you know, the staff will sort of say to you, oh, that sounded a bit funny today, didn't it? <laughs> 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 like, oh, thanks. <laughs> but, yeah, it happened so many times. It happened so many times. Yeah. How about you, Matt? Well, yeah, I just got sent um, about 20 tunes from the, the Jimmy Barnes Cold Chisel show I do. Um the guy who runs the PA is also the singer and um, he's running a Behringer X32. So he's recording everything as well. Yeah. Um, and he's just gotten around to mixing them as um, as like demos and things. And they sound surprisingly good because live, my philosophy is um, I just I just go for it. And yeah. and I know I know some stuff will be sloppy and not everything will come off, but I just want to go go at it at, at that moment. Um and not expecting to get sent a bunch of songs, you know, maybe some months later or something. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm enjoying hearing the tracks back and I'm glad I'm kind of going for it. And, and so far, nothing's been uh, totally. Um, <laughs> but I mean, uh, it's discouraging. It's, it's funny that because I mean, musicians, we are all our worst critics, our own worst critics. Yeah, We're such yeah. self critical, cynical bastards. <laughs> but it is all a good. Us. It is a good 
thing to do if you can. Yeah. Like what you said, record your gigs and listen back because there are moments where you think, oh, that was absolute genius what I did. And then when you listen back, you go, that didn't work. You know, that was. And then you go, oh, I didn't feel that. And then you listen back and you go, that was really good. But you do learn. um, Occasionally I'll might mentor somebody a little bit and you do. You just go, just listen to yourself play. You know, that's how you get better. You go, uh, yeah. you, as you said, you know, your own worst critic sometimes. And if you can be that kind of objective to yourself and go, oh, I need to fix that or I need to fix that or something doesn't well, work, it's a good way to learn without having to sit face-to-face with someone and them tell you, you know, being your own um, sort of editor and producer is a, is a good skill to have. I used Definitely. to I used to always... Uh, um, um, Back in the days when I used to play in a band a lot, and digital desks would come out, you know, and you could you could record without telling the other guys in the band stick a USB stick in there and just record it all. Because as yeah. soon as you tell them, it'll be a horrible recording. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and if you don't secret. tell them, they go, "Oh, that was no, don't use that. Whatever you do, don't use it." But you listen back to it, and it's really good. And one thing I started doing a little while ago, and I stopped. I should really do it again. I just when I played solo gigs, I just put my phone in front of me. And just went live on Facebook and did entire sets live on Facebook. Yeah. Whether I screw up or not, you know, that's just the way it is. But the funny thing is then you listen back to it and, and more often than not, you kind of go, oh, you know what? Actually, I, I'm actually not that bad, <laughs> <laughs> you know. And, and it is funny how you in the moment, you often you are your own worst critic, by far your own worst critic. Oh, yeah. totally, totally. I often... Um, Hearing stuff back to that whole objectivity is yeah. really interesting because yeah. often how I feel about how I'm playing or interacting with the band is what, is what does everything sound like? What does the guitar feel like in this room? Is it a good sounding room? The recording doesn't care about that. No. You're just hearing, is my tone working? Yeah. Um, that's good to be objective when you hear it back. You know, oh, am I too gainy? Am I not gainy enough? Oh, n- never, never not too gainy. Never not too um, <laughs> not enough. Anyway, so all all that kind of stuff, or you know how the guitar feels. But again, the re- the recording doesn't doesn't care. Yeah. Doesn't care about that either. Yeah, so, and it's a good thing to um like we use it for promo. So I don't yeah. like going into a studio and recording promo yeah. for the band Pristine. Just take a minute of live, like four live songs into a minute with some video footage, and it's real. Like yeah. people, there's an, I think people want to see real yeah. these days. And that yeah. was one of the points they made on the, on the Bonamassa podcast was that when things go wrong, people can identify with that yeah. and that becomes their favorite gig because, you know, they saw the guy amp clap out and someone run over and do that. I know when I saw Bon Jovi at Eastern Creek, the, um, the, the story that we had out of that was that the rain got in, blew a whole, you know, 64-channel desk or whatever it was, and we're just looking up at the mixing tower while they unplug one, <laughs> really? pull a second one up and put it on and repatch it, and then slowly it comes back. Yeah. And you go, man, that is amazing because the band didn't stop playing. Yeah. They're like, they just it was kept just going. vocals and acoustic guitar there for a little bit, and then a floor tom came back. And they're the moments where the band goes, oh, that probably, that was, you know, that horrible, that went wrong. But, but for us in the audience, it. it was yeah. like, that was something real. And we watched Special them moment. battle through it. 
you know, yeah. and yeah. make some jokes and whatever. It's, yeah. 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 There's something super special just about playing Hay, which I know we've all appreciated being able to do a bit more lately. Um, and when it's fragile like it is at the moment, it's it's, uh, it's an interesting dynamic because it's it's such yeah, yeah. such a special moment, those yeah. couple of hours on stage. All right. Well, Gabor and Rob, guys, thank you so much. It's been a really cool show. And my thanks also to Fretboard Biology for sponsoring today's episode. Uh, maybe you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you podcast. We've got a whole bunch of other iconic albums we've been talking about on the show my name is matt wakeling you've been listening to the guitar speak podcast and always like to close with the words of wisdom from german rocker michael schenker of scorpions ufo and the msg who once told me keep rocking keep on rocking keep on rocking indeed i'll catch you next time bye now